The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, um, welcome back to our refuge class. And uh, happy to be here with you all. Uh, it's sometimes said that there are two forms of the refuge. One uh, sometimes called the conventional form or the customary form. And I think what that means is the one that maybe most people do kind of in the world. And that's, uh, in, in that way, uh, when you take refuge, some people for that it's the sign or it's the initiation into becoming a Buddhist. Now you go for refuge, that's like the, the, the bottom denominator kind of qualification for becoming a Buddhist for some people, just you take, go for refuge. And uh, many people have uh, that relationship to Buddhism where they feel like that's their identity, that's their spiritual home, that's their, their religion, and they feel like that identifies them in a way that's appropriate for them. Um, and then, uh, then there's the, what might be, I don't know what to call the other one, um, the religious refuge or the spiritual refuge. And that's where, uh, uh, rather than becoming a Buddhist, uh, you, you awaken or give birth or live by the qualities of a Buddha. So uh, a Buddha is someone who's awake, who's truthful, someone who's compassionate, someone who's mindful someone who is ethical, someone who is, has some modicum of equanimity, uh, has a variety of qualities. And, uh, and so the idea is to, to take refuge uh, in the spiritual ways, take refuge in those qualities that you have. So it's not something out there. So the conventional way of going for refuge, it said, is that uh, you have a relationship to the Buddha. The Buddha is there, Buddha was somewhere, in the past, or different, and that you, you take refuge in that person, in that person's teachings, in something, and it's a relationship. And relationships are, you know, are meaningful. You know, it's a, to have a sense of a, you're relating to something, uh, sometimes touches something very profound. And, and, um, and to have some relationship to the Buddha, whether it's a, some, I don't know, some sense of, idea of who it was a long time ago or some sense of an archetype now or some sense of something that still lives. Some people find it very meaningful. The spiritual refuge um, is kind of similar as I said before is that uh, you have a relationship with those qualities of a Buddha inside yourself. And so uh, there you recognize that there are these qualities. Maybe they're not always there. Maybe they're seldom there. <laughs> but they're there. Or you trust that they're there. And you trust as a path to awaken them or align yourself with them. The, um, it's said that um, the, the traditional commentaries about refuge, Theravada commentaries, say that uh, to go for refuge, something as I said last week, go for refuge involves an intention, it involves an understanding, and it, involve, it involves some kind of heartfelt relationship to the whole refuge thing. Some people call that, you know, a, a devotion to it or something. And I, I'd like to add that it involves trust. It involves trusting something. And for me, in my path to Buddhism, 
um, trusting was a, has been a very important concept, a very important quality that uh, I think I don't think I could have practiced without it because it was almost like a kind of a, a kind of you know in some ways it was my primary practice. I'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, the intention part I think of as choice. There's you make a choice that you're going to align yourself or you're going to um, uh, involve yourself with something that's very meaningful for you. And so that thing which is very meaningful for you is represented by the Buddha Dharma, the Sangha, whether it's the external Buddha or the internal Buddha qualities that you think you have or hope you have, that uh, it's there. And so it's a choice. It's a choice to live a certain way. Uh, it's a choice to align yourself with certain values. It's a choice to, um, to trust something. Trust the Buddha, trust the practice, trust the community, trust something. But it's a choice. And, uh, and to go for refuge is not something you do just once, but it's, in some ways you keep doing it over and over again. And some people find it most meaningful when their life is most challenged. That uh, uh, there's some, something, some place you can go that can support you and guide you and align you. And you choose to go there. Something that's bigger than your self-centered idea of self or your own self-centered kind of ideas. It's up to me, I have to do it. Uh, it's, um, in fact, the, the idea of refuge is supposed to protect you a, a little bit from yourself in the egotistical sense of self. You know, you're caught up in your own little drama and think it's all up to you. And there's something very uh, significant about um, being able to stay present for situations, not turn your back towards them, stay present and realize there's more that supports you in that in that more than support, there's more that supports you or supports the situation than your efforts, what you can understand even. And, um, and so taking refuge is in some ways to remind yourself there's more here. If you're, if you're honest, if you're present in a non-reactive way, if you're kind, if compassionate, if you're just there, the Dharma will support you. The, so to make a choice, the second understanding means there's something you really understand. So it's not blind faith. And the hope is that there's something you've, you've come to understand in the course of your contact with Buddhism and, or Buddhist practice. And there's something that here you understand something about the values. You understand something about the ethical values that are the foundation of it all. You understand something about the practices of mindfulness and concentration and, and presence. You understand something about the teachings about uh, generosity and compassion. You understand something about the possibility of a path that awakens you, that frees you, that changes you so you're not kind of caught up in a small, constricted world of self-preoccupation or desire or fear or hate or something. So you understand there is something here for you. And so, uh, you know, without some, that understanding can deepen and widen over time but that's kind of implied in this idea of refuge. And then devotion, the heartfelt quality, I don't know if it's required, but uh, I think it really helps that uh, there's some, it's got some, something, it touches your heart in some way. The, the expression that I like is that um, something you're willing to give yourself wholeheartedly to. So the idea of, you know, maybe that kind of saves you from the idea of devotion if you don't like that language. But uh, something you're willing to give yourself wholeheartedly to Yes, it's kind of a yes, yes, this is good. And then the trust is uh, this wonderful uh, concept. 
idea. And um, the, um, I had a friend who many years would ask me, what are you trusting? When you're, you know, this Buddhism, this Buddhism you say, you, you know, you, you practice trust, what are you trusting? And um, she was completely perplexed because I would say, it's not something, it's not an object of trust. It's, uh, I just trust. It doesn't have to be an object. And, uh, and that's kind of one of the things I've learned, is that you can just, that I trust. And this is maybe the trust of Dharma, which is maybe a little bit the topic for today, the refuge in the Dharma. The word Dharma, some people say that the root of the word, the etymological root, uh, comes from the, uh, a word meaning support. So then people who point to that root say that what Dharma is, is that which supports, that which supports you. And, um, and, uh, and I think that what I've learned is that the act of trust is closely akin to the act of making space in the universe for something else to operate than my own little self-centered trying to manipulate and control and fix and do things. And would rather make space and let go of the contracted self, let go of the being caught by things. And generally, if I, I've, I've come to trust that place and that, that space, the, the gap, the time, the pause, the, the unfolding of what happens in that kind of realm. And so for me, the Dharma uh, is that which supports, and supports this, sometimes a little bit unseen, you know, it's not always obvious to me what it is that's going to happen, how do we find our way forward here. I'm sometimes in very difficult situations with people and um, I'm invited in as a teacher or asked in. And I, sometimes I don't know. Uh, it happened this uh, last, yesterday it happened, someone came to me and said she had a very difficult life circumstance and she really wanted to talk to me. And I said, I have a better teacher for you. I think you should go talk to, I mentioned some more senior teacher than me and that he's really good. Talk to him. Well, maybe, but I want to talk to you. <laughs> I said, okay. And, uh, and I really don't know, but it's okay because I trust. I don't have to know. But what I offer is that I receive and be present for that person. And in that being present, something begins to work and something begins to show itself. And, um, and I don't attribute it to me. I don't attribute it to the person I'm with or situation, but it's kind of co-created. It rises together and... And, um, and so I, I've seen this over and over again in my life, um, that there's something operating here that's not my own little, even sometimes what I can understand, and I've learned to trust that. So this trust, the Dharma. So the Dharma is both something maybe that's difficult to fathom, and it's something that's very clear. Some people are inspired when they come to Buddhism because the teachings they hear, the Dharma they hear, is so clear and so precise and so makes so, so logical, the Four Noble Truths. You know, some people, wow, finally, this makes a lot of sense to me. And that's what, um, you know, meaning, meaningful for them. And so they have this very logical, clear thing and they start practicing it and start letting go. And after a while, they realize they're in a bigger universe than they could ever have dreamt to be in. Wow, there's more going on here. There's more that supports us. So the Dharma, so refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and the Sangha. So refuge in the Dharma is, uh, is refu- take certainly refuge in the, the teachings, wonderful teachings that the Buddhism has to offer. You don't have to take refuge in all of them. I don't. <laughs> Some of them I think are bizarre. <laughs> so, um, so I don't feel like I have to like, accept it wholesale, the whole, the whole show. I, 
engage with it with my intelligence and my practice in the best I can and give it the benefit of the doubt so that I can engage in the teachings and, and find out. But I don't necessarily doesn't mean I just can accept everything. But it certainly uh, it means the teachings. It also uh, means the practices of Buddhism. And there's a beautiful, you know, toolbox of wonderful practices, quite amazing, that uh, human beings have come across a set of dis- uh, mental disciplines, heartfelt disciplines, that uh, can reveal and uncover so much about the human heart and the mind and transform it in such a powerful way. Uh, it's really an amazing thing. And then Dharma is also the principles of that kind of the law, sometimes people call the laws, the patterns of reality. Um, you know, if you, basic patterns of karma that uh, you will, uh, uh, that what you do has consequences. Pretty simple law of the universe. So, so if you are hateful, being hateful has a very different uh, consequence than if you're kind. If you're miserly, that has a very different consequence than if you're generous. If you hide from paying it to note, if you, put, you avoid what's really happening, that has a very different consequence than if you face what's happening. And the consequences don't have to be seen as, can be, can be seen as just happening right here and now. You can feel it in yourself. You can feel the suffering or the contraction or the limitation, how we put our life under limitation one way and how the other way our life becomes more open. And so to understand that there are these kind of patterns or these laws or these, that operate and, uh, and our choices in how we live uh, decides how we participate in these patterns. And so if you live in such a way that you contract, that has consequences in one way, and if you opens, it has other consequences. So that's... Um, so... Um, finally, the Dharma, uh, for me, uh, is... Um, you know, two things then, that's finally, but so Dharma also re- refers to those qualities. The word Dharma is a multivalent word. It means there's one Buddhist dictionary, ancient Buddhist dictionary. I think it has like 54 definitions for what Dharma means. And one of the most simple definitions it me- in Dharma means, it just means, it literally means the word, same as the English word thing. So, <laughs> you know, so if you start, you know, that's like pretty encompassing, right? And so it also means the teachings of the Buddha. It means the. It also means uh, qualities of heart and mind. So uh, if the, if you have compassion, that's a dharma. If you're uh, if you have uh, clarity in your mind or cl- you know clear mindfulness, that mindfulness is a dharma. And so there's all these mental qualities mental that we have. And so uh, taking refuge uh, again in the, in the spiritual way to the dharma that's inside of you and the patterns and the laws that unfold inside of you and your own heart and mind if you practice. It's quite remarkable, um, you know, to be a teacher, to, to get a glimpse into some of the power of, of karma because people will uh, have done something 20, 30, 40 years ago and then they go and retreat especially and something happens there and it comes up back to be something they have to face finally. And... Um, you know, these things reside inside of us. So the, uh, whether it's the things we've kind of stuffed away in there, unresolved issues, or whether it's the beautiful qualities that we give birth to. 
And then, so then the thing was finally about the dharmas. Sometimes I think of the dharma as just everything. <laughs> no, it's, um, it's everything when it's whole. And, uh, and what makes it whole, everything is whole already. I mean, that's kind of a silly concept, you know, where, what's going to happen? So the universe is not going to be whole. Um, but the universe, for me, psychologically, the universe becomes whole when I don't divide it. When I don't divide it into, or fragment it, or narrow it down, or cut it off. And so part of Dharma practice, taking refuge in Dharma, is to take refuge in the idea of being whole, complete, to be full. And I like it this way because not that I become full and complete, but rather the universe becomes full and complete. It becomes bigger. I can't just identify with me being this way. And uh, so it has a lot to do with um, letting the mind, the heart, become uh, open, relaxed, soft, not caught up in its concepts and ideas. And, and uh, so there's something about trusting that being whole, trusting that fullness, uh, trusting the process and the path. I guess I keep saying this the last thing about the Dharma. But the, the Dharma also means uh, the path, that there is a path to practice. And some people find when they take refuge that that's uh, uh, what they find most supportive is the idea that there's a path. There's a, there's a practice you can do that will take you somewhere, will transform you will support you, will help you, will get you out of the times of darkness that you have into the light that will help you through difficulties, that will uh, show you some of the most important qualities that the world needs from us, that we can, we can open up and find these things, and to have a path. And this is very important for me, the idea of a path. Um, uh, personally, um, it's uh, very meaningful for me that there's a path to a direction of full awakening and freedom and all that. And um, kind of like what I said last week, I, it's not that I, I don't necessarily expect that I'm going to become, a, no, not even remotely expect I'll become a Buddha. You know, but um, I love being on the path. And it doesn't matter to me so much how far I get on the path. I just like being on the path. I like walking it. I like engaging it. It's more important for me to take the step the next step on the path than it is like what's, you know, a mile down the road. And so this idea of just find, you know, that there's a path this can be very meaningful. So refuge. Uh, refuge in the Buddha and then the refuge in the Dharma. And that's kind of what I wanted to spend a little bit of time for you guys discussing among yourselves a little bit so you can kind of explore this topic of Dharma uh, and hear each other a little bit and hear yourself as you speak about it. And uh, so the topic for Dharma that I, I want to start with is, uh, is uh, can you remember or, uh, uh, a time when uh, you heard or learned about some Buddhist teaching or some Buddhist practice and something inside of you said yes to that? That makes sense. Maybe you heard it, but like, ugh. That was the first reaction. Of, oh, you know, who are these people? They don't know what they're talking about. And then, lo and behold, five years later, it's, oh, yes. So is there anything, any of the teachings of Buddhism, any of the practices of Buddhism that you said yes to? Or you said, oh, that makes sense. I like that. That, 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 uh, that, that is meaningful for me. That's something that I want to align with or do. Or That's really good. Um, is that kind of clear enough? I don't want to be too clear with these questions because 
because uh, the part of the point is to kind of make it vague enough so you can find yourself. You don't have to kind of box yourself into my idea of that question. It is just a suggestion to help you find your own way in this topic. So um, you're welcome, you know, when you listen to other people, or, you know, when you talk together, to be very different from each other. You don't have to be the same. You know, in fact, if one person starts, doesn't mean you have to kind of like, oh, catch up <laughs> to be that bad. So it's nice to have differences. So um, I'm thinking that maybe we should do groups of three. How does that sound to you? And do that. Just go and go. And, and why don't you spend about um, maybe three minutes for each person? Is it a lot or a little? Oh, it seems long. That seems long. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe so. For some of you, maybe three minutes is really long. But what are the nice things about long monologues like that? is that uh, sometimes you run out of the obvious things to say first, and then as you stretch and explore, you discover new things for yourself that's nice. So it's a kind of good to do it. And, um, and actually, when this, that form of you know, stretching as you have these monologues, they should be 15 minutes long. Really, but we'll do three minutes. And, um, and then I'll ring a bell after three minutes, and then the next person to try it can do it. And then after you've all three done it, then you can have for a little bit uh, an open discussion. Just whatever seems wants to come out of that, as long as it's not giving advice or, or giving better, you know, some better teachings to what the person said. You know, no, no, just, just, just a kind of open, open discussion about what, what, seems, what seems right, given how the three of you had your discussion. So I don't know if we're multiples of three here, but I suggest that um, if you don't find something, with three, just walk towards the front and you'll find people who maybe are still looking and if there's, uh, I need to make some arrangements the other way, I'll make it because you're close up here. Perhaps a couple of people can just say what that was like, just to have that little conversation. Anybody? Hi, I'm Lindsay. Uh, one, it's always wonderful to talk with anyone here. <laughs> um, but it's a little off topic, but I found um, a lot of the time I'm a nervous rambler. And I, when we have awkward silences, I feel that need to just jump in and fix it or say something. Um, but this time I really practiced on listening and making sure, I think the three minutes of each person make <laughs> work better. I just kept back. Mm. And I was so surprised to see that instead of what I assumed what was going to happen, which was awkward silence, it gave the other person room to really explore mm. their thoughts and express themselves. And I really got to connect with that person mm. and just hear more of what they had to say and bond with them more. And it was a really good lesson for me. Great. It's a, it's a lesson I still continue to learn. <laughs> Great. And... Um, yes, I think um, I found it a helpful process, and I think we all did. Um, and I um, raised a question when we sort of got some more time at the end, which um, my friends resonated with, 
and that's how to be in the world um, with a new understanding around the friends and the sort of uh, relationships we've had. So I'm sure that all of us have dealt with that on some level. Um, so I think it's an interesting topic. That's a great question. For me. Maybe not for here, for now, but it's a great question. And, and uh, sometimes there are small and big sh- shifts that happen with our friends when we start practicing, and how to negotiate that is a big topic. Thank you. Okay. Maybe it's enough so we don't have that much time here. Um, I'm going to start passing this out around the room. So uh, in a a few weeks, we'll have a refuge ceremony for those of you who would like to be part of it. And you don't have to decide today whether you're going to do it or not. But um, uh, I want to start collecting people's names because I'm going to give you a document, a refuge document, and um, that will have your name on it. And so I have to be able to spell your name accurately. So if you're planning to come or think you'd like to come, suspecting you might come, uh, if you could write your uh, uh, first and last name here and write it really clearly because, I mean, it has to be, so I don't make a mistake, right? It's just super clear and um, print it. And then, um, so maybe we could, someone can take it. And then just as you're, as we're going through the rest of the evening, maybe just pass it around and, and uh, we will. We will um, so the idea is that uh, we'll gather for a potluck first. So the idea of a community going through this together is very nice. And so those of you who can come early enough, around six thirty or so, we'll have a, a potluck. And I'll ask a few of you to come a little bit earlier to set up. And then uh, after we clean up from the potluck, we'll have a ceremony. And, and um, if for some reason you don't come tomorrow. I mean, next week, next week. Um, I guess I should give some instructions. Like, I know some of you won't be here next week. Um, what? I'm just saying, I won't. Yeah. And um, so, um, so, uh, so, so in terms of the ceremony, uh, the, I think the only thing that you need to bring that's, is, um, is bring two candles. And one candle will be um, a uh, gift to the Buddha. And you're going to light, that candle, you're going to light it. So actually, what the gift is, the light. And, uh, and, and so, the, uh, so you have to, it has to be a candle that can stand upright. So either bring a little candle stand or something that's wide or something that stand by itself. And we'll have lots of candles burning here as part of the ceremony. And then uh, one candle is a gift to me, to me. And uh, it'd be nice if the candle was unscented. It could be a very simple candle. It could just be a little votive candle. It's not to be anything special. Whatever you'd like to do, but the idea it's a it's a gift to me as part of the ceremony, and then you'll get something from me. So that's a, that's a, that's a potluck and candles, two candles. Okay, and we'll go we'll talk about it again next week, but. Um, so the, today I was talking to a woman who said that her, what it, what it seemed like to her, her entryway to, uh, to Buddhist practice was in getting a divorce. And uh, she had kids, and uh, she noticed, or someone told her, or she understood, that uh, if, she, if she spoke really badly, because she had like maybe a lot of anger or something, 
about her ex, either in the presence of her kids or not in the presence of her kids, that somehow it would come back and affect her kids and create this disharmony and, and therefore affect her. And from that she learned that she had to be whole, she had to be complete. The circle is, you know, the circle, you want to keep the circle whole and complete and not cut it and fragment it in any way. And, um, and so she learned that from that idea that not cutting the, not fragmenting, not cutting the, uh, the circle, or the whole, uh, she got interested in living a life which was more whole, holistic, wholesome. And um, so the idea of the precepts is part of the refuge uh, ceremony. So there's two elements of the ceremony. There's the uh, going for refuge, and then there is the, um, including that is receiving or taking the precepts. And uh, lining, you know, making a choice. Do you remember these different aspects? There's the intention, there's a choice, there's the understanding. There's the heartfelt quality and the trust qualities. Uh, and these also get applied to uh, uh, our ethical life, that there are certain ways of behaving which support the practice, certain ways of behaving which support our life, certain li- uh, ways of behaving which helps make our life whole as opposed to fragmented. You know. And when we break the precepts, if you uh, kill or harm or steal and so forth, that uh, something gets cut, something gets fragmented, something's not whole anymore. And, um, and so this idea that uh, going for refuge is, is a kind of a way of hopefully becoming whole, or not being cut off from ourselves or cut off from the world or separated or, or um, to be able to include, include everything, <coughs> being able to include everything that we are, everything that the world is in a way that works. And, and living by the precepts is a way that allows us to include everything that makes it all work. So the, uh, the five precepts are uh, usually trans- The first one is called not to kill. I think that Pali li- literally means something like not to strike or not to harm. So I, I like it that it doesn't. Mean, it means it's more more means more than just not to kill. So I like to think of it as not harming. And it's also the first, it's the principle for the other four, because that's the fundamental principle of ethics. You don't want to live a life where you're harming. And so the next one is not to steal. And the way that's worded is not to take what's not given. The third is not to engage in sexual misconduct, which is um, not to cause harm through your sexuality. And the fourth is not to lie, not to engage in false speech. And the fifth is not to... Um, intoxicate your mind with drugs or alcohol. And um, because two reasons for that. One is that if you intoxicate your mind, uh, you're more likely to break the other precepts. <laughs> and uh, the second is you're um, not going to, you know, you're, you're going to lose your mindfulness. And, you know, we're trying to be awake and uh, see clearly. And if you're not seeing clearly, then the whole path and the whole way of being, you can't really be whole if you don't see clearly. So that anything that obscures your ability to see and understand and to process life, it gets in the way. So uh, living ethically uh, is part of the Dharma, part of what supports us. And living, it's part of the principles and the laws and the patterns that uh, living by the, by the precepts make a difference in our lives and supports it. And the idea in Buddhism is um, not to leave the precepts as rules, so sometimes like the rules of restraint, you don't do these things. 
but, uh, but to make them uh, qualities of our character so that uh, simply how you are in the world is you, would, you wouldn't go killing. As you are in the world, you wouldn't steal or engage these things. It's not what you would do. You wouldn't want to harm. Just kind of your character becomes that way. It's kind of like your character becomes the precepts rather than, rather than you know, something external. So part of the ceremony will be taking these precepts. And one of the things you need to reflect on is your relationship to those precepts. Um, I had, there was one woman who came and did the ceremony some years ago. <clears throat> and she said, I don't know if I, I don't think I can do the ceremony because one, I don't know if I forget, I forget which one it was, but one of the precepts she couldn't live by. I mean, I mean she didn't feel good about herself, but she's like, I can't stop doing this thing. And um, so I guess I can't do the ceremony. And I said to her, um, no, no, you should come do the ceremony. And uh, just when we come to that part, uh, just be silent. So don't, don't, don't take that precept if you can't take it. Um, because this, is, this, this, this ceremony is for you. It's not for the Buddha. Or for, you, know, you know, you have to kind of align yourself or enter into a kind of like this rigid idea. This is what it has to be. There's no idea of rigid, rigidity. It's, just, it's all what supports us. It's all what helps us on the path and moves us along. So for her, it was really clear that the ceremony and the other precepts would really help her along, would support her, and then really she had a beautiful intention, beautiful woman, beautiful intention, and I knew that eventually she'd get to that fourth, that fifth one, whatever it was that she wasn't able to do, and I, and, uh, I wasn't going to, you know, hold back from this. So, but <clears throat> what I liked was that she reflected on it, and she she struggled with it, and she came and talked about it. So for you to look, to reflect and think about your relationship to all this and to the precepts and what it means to take the precepts, what it means to live by them, what it means to be in a ceremony. He says, yes, I intend to live by these five precepts. What does that mean for you? And uh, how, do you, how do you see it for yourself? And how do you see it for yourself in a way that has integrity for yourself or works for you? So that's um, kind of part of it. And, it uh, and for that purpose, I thought it'd be good for you to have another conversation. And I think this time, uh, it's probably better to do with just one other person. And you, you don't have to uh, be very personal if you don't want it. This is too personal to talk about this. Just share the part that works for you. This is not confession here. But um, from uh, what you've heard so far, what you've thought in your life so far, what, do you, what, what, uh, what has this evoked for you? This little talk I gave about the precepts, about virtue, and that this is part of it, and and how you're going to relate to this, and how, what it means, what it might mean for you, and and uh, I haven't given you much time to think about it, so don't. It can be more like thinking out loud and exploring it, and just kind of, how is this for you? What comes up for you? What what do you think about this? And and what might be your relationship to it? To kind of begin the process of reflection about it. Is that okay? Is it clear enough? And vague enough? Both. <laughs> so uh, I suggest you uh, find someone new that you didn't weren't part of your little threesome just so we get to meet more people. And I think in the same way, I think, same way as before, let's do a monologue. So one person speak first for about three, three or four minutes, and then I'll ring a bell, and then the other person speaks. So any any comments about that conversation you'd like to share?
Thank you very much. Um, this, this is kind of a, an interesting example, just more for what it implies. Um, if you have ants coming into your house, um, you know, they create a trail for other ants to follow, but if you kill an ant, it kind of creates a chemical signal that this is not a good place to go and the ants won't come in. Oh, so you, so you just kill one and then it takes care of it? <laughs> so I just, you know, what do you think about that kind of uh, example? Well, well, we have had ants in our house, and um, and we've had. Uh, uh, I haven't wanted to kill the ants, so I've had these major campaigns <laughs> <laughs> to try to avoid killing them, and I tried all kinds of things. I mean, keeping the house clean is really kitchen. That's where they come in. Keeping it really clean is really important, and um, and so that's extra care for that, rather than killing, right? clean rather than kill. <laughs> and then, um, and then uh, tried all kinds of things. Uh, but the thing that I finally, we finally, I finally come to that seems to work for our, for our ants and our, is uh, cinnamon. So I'll, I'll sprinkle cinnamon uh, wherever they're coming into the house. And, um, and then they don't want to cross the cinnamon. And then it's a whole bunch of them in further in, then I'll gently sweep them up and uh, put them outside but I, I don't have a good conscience about that because they probably won't find their 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 either their friends and they and they don't really they don't really live very well alone yeah so but I kind of sweep them up carefully and try to put them outside so that's what I do just a funny thing when we were talking there was a fly of some sort flying around and I instantly went like this <laughs> and then I caught myself and I thought I'm going to have to leave now <laughs> <laughs> I lived in a place that had uh, mosquitoes and they would come into the house and I would go around try to catch it and then when, when I caught it like this inside then I'd have someone open the door and I'd let it go I let them sit after I thought about it <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, it's, um, uh, and I, I would say that I, I, don't, I, I don't have so much care with the ants and the mosquitoes because I'm following the precept. I, f- I have all the, the care because there's something about the, somehow in my heart, I just can't, I just can't do it. I just, like, it doesn't seem right. I'm just not, not in it, for me, in it for me to do it. Something changed in me that, that I don't want to do it. And so the precept for me is um, not to kill Kind of just represents what's already here in my heart, and what you know, I just can't do that. Yeah. <clears throat> the lady I was talking to, I were talking about um, speech. So you know, uh, really being conscious of uh, good speech, <laughs> and in the workplace, it's so easy to get into the kind of us and them and gossip and that sort of thing, and that we realize that also leads to harm and not feeling too good about yourself so we talked about that a lot nice yeah speech is a hugely big issue and, and uh, some people find that's the hardest of the precepts because of it covers such a big range of uh, behavior I think we had an interesting discussion about 
you know, uh, some of us come from a background where we did Ten Commandments and there's a lot of, you know, thou shalt not. And it doesn't necessarily feel positive, although I was also reminded that one of the commandments was to honor thy father and mother, which is something that's positive. Um, and um, I remember when Thich Nhat Hanh, I heard Thich Nhat Hanh speak about the precepts one time, and, and it was great because he, he did point to the positive intention behind these things. But what I appreciate is that inside the precepts, we, we've kind of taken a fairly narrow wedge and said, that's out. So things like, um, like intoxication, well, it's clear at the pot, like I'm not bringing wine. If this was my friends, I might bring a bottle of wine to share in a public event. So it's a boot, it's, by having these things, we kind of made some definitions around what's um, a normal part of our practice. Um, and at the same time, there's also a whole layers of subtleties with everything. Because even something as simply obvious as um, uh, not being harmful sexually, you might start with something obvious like, you know, don't cheat on your spouse, but what does that really mean? Um, can you flirt with someone else? Uh, where, where's an appropriate boundary for that? And, and I love it. And especially we talked about food for a bit. That one comes up a lot. Um, we're a very meat-centric culture. And so, you know, you just have to keep thinking about, okay, is this harmful? Is that harmful? Because you know, you, to a degree, we're, we're, we're always going to be creating some harm. We have to eat something. Something that's living has to die for us to survive. We're not breatharians. So that's... I, I, I just really appreciate that constant... It's just a question, it feels good, like. Good, good. It's possible that uh, the choice in English to call these the precepts is not... is a little bit confusing or to imply some kind of absolute commandments. The, um, the, the wording in the usual ceremony of taking the precepts is that one commits oneself to the training of not taking what's not given, training of not killing. And so the, the training implies it's not so black and white. It means you're, you're working towards something. You're developing yourself. You're training yourself. And so it's an aspiration that you're, you're sincerely trying to develop yourself to be a person who is that way. And so if you fall down and mess up or something... It's not held, you know, against you like you like you sin, but rather, it's just okay. I got to try harder now. Um, the one thing I've struggled with um, is the last one, the intoxicants, because of this issue of knowing if it's absolute or not. And I've really been working with it um, myself. And what I'm doing is instead of seeing it as I can never have a beer or a cup of coffee really deliberating beforehand, and it's really cut back. Um, I really, you know, I want it for five minutes, and then I don't want it anymore, so if I can withstand that five (laughs) minutes of time, it passes, and it's fine. Um, So I just, I see that that's, it's helping me make that progress that you're describing. Nice. And then we also talked about, um, in terms of the intoxicants, there's so many other things, too. I've been thinking a lot about caffeine, because I really like caffeine, but... um, Food, if you eat too much of it, you get really tired and you can't think clearly. So there's so many different types of things that I don't usually think of as intoxicants that could be part of that um, discernment around um, that yeah, ethical. Yeah, tel- television. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Facebook. People. Yeah. Yeah. Great, thank you. So one more, last one. I was thinking about the, um, the precept of not taking what isn't freely given. And, it, you know, it's easy initially for me to say, oh, well, you know, I don't, I don't do that. 
But what struck me was something I heard a long time ago about stealing time mm. from someone, yeah. de- making demands on their time. And that's something that I know I need to look at and continually grow in. Not doing it, but not doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so. Yeah, thank you. And related to that is, is uh, taking their attention, like if you're in a conversation, dominating the conversation. Mm-hmm. Great, thank you. So, we need to wind, wind up. <clears throat> um, so a couple of things. One is um, uh, Diana reminded me that <clears throat> uh, I said bring two candles, but one more thing you should bring, and that is a, a flower, or it could be a few flowers, and we'll offer the flowers to the Buddha too as part of the ceremony. So uh, the flower, some flowers, and um, <clears throat> two candles. I'll repeat that to next week, but for those of you, that, I know some people won't be here next week. And the other is... Um, um, There is uh, part of the part of the ceremony is to do some chants, and there's a we call it three chants. The one is the precepts, the chanting of the refuges, and then it all begins these, uh, with uh, what's called the salutation to the Buddha, or homage to the Buddha. And I, I want, for those of you who don't know it, I want to teach that to you tonight, or at least get you familiar with it. And um, it's uh, Namo Tassa Bhagavata. Bhagavato, Aharato, Sama, Sambuddhasa. And Nama, it's a, very, it's a wonderful way in which Indo-European languages are related. Uh, it's connected to the word name. And so you're naming someone, you're kind of evoking. You know, evoking the Buddha, or naming the Buddha, or calling the Buddha, or inviting the Buddha, or paying homage to the Buddha. Usually people say homage in this context. And then Tasa means uh, the one, so, calling on the one, homage to the one. Bhagavato is sometimes translated into English as Lord. Um, I don't know if that's kind of like Victorian English. and I don't really, most people, mo, some people translate it as, the most common way to translate nowadays is the Blessed One. Um, and um, the one who is blessed in some way or is graced in some way. And the etymology of the word, it means uh, to shine, to be luminous. And um, it's still used in India to this day, the Bhagawan, you know, for like a spiritual teacher. And, um, oh, I, I skipped one. So it's Bhadnamo Tasa Bhagavato, then Aharato. Aharat is the one who is fully awakened, fully freed. And uh, the Buddha is someone who's fully awakened, fully freed, so name, naming him that way. Namo Tasa Bhagavato Aharato, Samma Sambuddhasa. That's usually translated as the one who is perfectly self-enlightened, completely self-enlightened. The Buddha, what was unique about the Buddha's awakening, uh, compared to everyone who followed in his wake, is he discovered the awakening by himself. He did it on his own. He didn't have a teacher until this pointed out. There it is, and so um, and so he's he's uh, kind of like respected for being the discoverer or the the person who found the way or the, did it on his own. So those are the words. And it goes uh, something like this. Different people, different traditions chant differently. Um, we have the IMC tradition. Basically the way I happen to do it. <laughs> I apologize. 
so it's a namo tasa bhagavato aharato samma sambuddhasa so what, what I'll do I'll do one word and you can repeat the word so namo Tasa Bhagavato Aharato Sama Sambuddhasa Got that well. So Namo Tasa Bhagavato Aharato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tasa Bhagavato Aharato Sama Sambuddhasa idea. You'd be great. So, um, and then next week I'll do, uh, teach you the refuges and how that's done. Those of you who might not know it, and we'll warm up for the ceremony. So, um, before we end, any questions any of you feel like you'd like to ask before we finish tonight? Anything about what I've talked about or what we've done or what's anything that seems important to, to end with? Yes, please. Yeah, if we could have the mic. Trudy, if you can give Thank you. Uh, my name's Misha, and I just want to say thank you for everyone bringing your practices here and sharing them with me, because I've missed having a sangha a lot in the last year, and that's why I'm here, because it's uh, I really just wanted to like live the Dharma on my own and see what happened, but I really miss having a sangha. <laughs> so, um, um, I just want to thank everyone for being here. Great. It means a lot. Thank you. Okay, and uh, the clipboard, where is that? You have it there. So if, uh, if you. you if you want to put your name on the clipboard, you do it before you leave, or we'll have it here next week too. And um, so, uh, I hope you have a wonderful week. Thank you.